now on Homer's Iliad, books three and four. But before we get to three, we are very quickly going to do a quick review of two yesterday. I'm just going to say some things that we need to know. Remember that Zeus sends Agamemnon an evil dream. Remember that evil dreams, or dreams in general, do not go inside of people's heads, but stand next to their heads while they are asleep. They are asleep and whisper sweet nothings to them. Remember, the fact that Zeus is sending this dream to Agamemnon is because Thetis, the mother of Achilleus, had requested that Zeus do honor to her son by harming the Achaeans. This obviously made witch goddess, who is the wife of Zeus, very upset because she supports the Achaeans and the destruction of Troy. Who can remember this? Yes, Hera. Hera, very good, very good. That said, Zeus nodded his terrible head, caused an earthquake, and his will will be done. Agamemnon hears from this dream, you will defeat the Trojans this very next day. We thought that was a little bit ridiculous, because how long has Agamemnon, and how long have the Achaeans, the Naeans, and Argives been fighting against the Trojans? For how many years at this point? Almost ten Nine years. So to wake up one day and to think that all of a sudden out of nowhere, even after you have lost your best warrior, you are going to win, seems rather outrageous. And that is precisely what Nestor thinks when he is called into assembly next to his own ship with Agamemnon. Agamemnon says, I saw you. Sort of like the Wizard of Oz. I you were there, and you were there, and you were there. He, I saw you in a dream, and in the dream you told me we would win the very next day. You can just imagine Nestor's face like, you saw me in a dream. Well, now you see me in reality. Dude, and you see my face, right? It looks like this. And do you still think this is a good idea? Agamemnon says, yes. And in, in fact, Nestor says, if any other can were to propose this plan, we would say it was a lie. And really, that's sort of like a translation issue. You might say that we would think it was a foolish mistake, is what he really means. And he's the wisest he can. So what is he saying without saying it? while kind of saying it. Yes? Agamemnon's making a foolish mistake. Right. Agamemnon's making a foolish mistake. We're all sort of laughing at him, but a foolish mistake that will cost people their what? Their lives. Right. This always in the background and the foreground and the middle ground of this story is we are at war. Mistakes cost people their lives. Not their lunch money, not some time, which is annoying enough, but their very lives. And so Agamemnon, and I really want you to think about this, is basing his battle strategy on a dream that he received, which is very different from Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. Uh, there's a big difference between having a vision of the future, which you call a dream, and actually having a dream at night that tells you what to do. Uh, in any case, I thought I would mention that. Uh, oh, yes, one thing I didn't tell you much about, Agamemnon's scepter. You noticed that it was made by Hephaestus, and it was given down to Hermes, and then it made it to Pelops, and then it made it to Atreus, and then it made it to Thiestes, and then it made it to Agamemnon, and you're like, that's boring, I don't care, Mr. Schmidt. Okay, okay, it seems boring, if all you see is what lies above, rather than what lies beneath. What's superficial, rather than what's substantial. Interesting, you could have thought a little bit about this, and perhaps noticed that something was odd there. I said that Thiestes gave Agamemnon the scepter. A scepter is something you give to a king. Well, why would it, who would you expect Agamemnon to receive his scepter from, given that he's a king? Yes? His father. His father. Is his father named Thiestes? No, his father's name is Atreus. And it said that Atreus gave the scepter 
to Theestes. I'll tell you one fact you don't know. Theestes is the brother of Atreus. Why do you think it was the case that the scepter made its way to Theestes rather than to Agamemnon directly? Yes. Uh, the Agamemnon was his firstborn, and Menelaus the secondborn. Yes? That's right. And it's actually technically more convoluted than that. Uh, Agamemnon's family is the most famous mythological family for all the terrible mistakes they make and all the people they kill within their own ranks. That said, Theestes' son, Aegisthus, who you will hear about very much again in relation to Agamemnon in the Odyssey, he killed. Agamemnon's father, Atreus. He was actually raised as Agamemnon's brother, even though he's his cousin. And because of that confusion, that confusion is related to the fact that Aegisthus, son of Theestes, kills Agamemnon's father, Atreus. He was actually, uh, Aegisthus was actually sent to kill Theestes, thinking Theestes was his uncle, discovered because of a special sword that he was actually his father, and then came back and killed Atreus instead. And so, Theestes received Agamemnon's scepter. Agamemnon and Menelaus would later go to Tyndarius, from whom they would receive their wives, Clytemestra and Helen, come back and destroy Theestes. And thus, Agamemnon's scepter comes to him, not by right of birth, but by what? I'm looking for another B word. Yes, blood by blood. That's right, that scepter is covered in blood. Pretty interesting story. In any case, let's keep moving. Agamemnon then tries to use reverse psychology on the troops, saying, I know you guys are all tired and want to go home. And everybody says, yes, we are. Let's go home. And the speech totally backfires, and they are not pumped up at all. Terrible speech giver. After he gives that speech, which goddess sees that there's trouble and sends another goddess down to earth to fix things? Hera, who is the goddess who comes down to earth to tell a person, a human, Odysseus, to fix things. <coughs> you. Uh, uh, Ooh, we need some help. Yes? Athena. Athena. And Athena goes to talk to the person who is most like Athena. And that's, yes? Odysseus. Odysseus. Remember the name. You won't be able to forget it. I assure you. Remember Ulysses, too. That's his Latin name. He comes up a lot in the history of Western thought. Probably because we value... Intelligence and cunning and trickery, too. And you very much like trickery. In fact, one of your favorite hello or oh, gosh, I'm like a terrible joke teller, the person who gives away the punchline uh, in, in the lead-up. Uh, but one of our most wonderful um, traditions, our holidays, is based on trickery. You even say you you might trick somebody whenever you meet them on such a day. Yes? Halloween. Halloween. Trick or treat. Exactly so. Exactly so. In any case... Athena comes down, she talks to Odysseus. Odysseus goes to talk to men of renown, kings, as well as commoners. In this ancient time, there is a distinction between landed men who own property and have cattle and can command people because of that power, and people who don't own land, who are more like serfs or servants, like you'll hear about in the Middle Ages. These people are called commoners. Why are they common as opposed to elite? Well, several reasons. They don't have access to the same nutrition, as those who are elite are, they don't have access to the same weapons training, they don't have access to chariots, they don't have access to horses, they don't have access to the same learning of the rhetorical art, which is the art of speech. The people at this time are very much different from each other based on their social rank, which 
is, uh, uh, you know, one of the amazing things about America that we do not define ourselves in this way. As a democracy, we are all what? Equal, right? We don't have a such thing as elites or commoners in this country, which is very interesting, very different from this time. So the people we will mostly be focusing on are those elites, those kings, those people who are highly differentiated. But we do run into one commoner who likes to talk a whole lot of trash while Odysseus is trying to get work done. I believe he's even described as of the endless speech, also described as the worst of the Achaeans, also described as the ugliest of the Achaeans, also has a pointed head, patchy hair, band is bandy-legged. You may not know what no bandy-legged man is, but a bandy-legged guy's a guy with knobby knees. What knobby knees mean? Knees are knocked together. And he's hunchbacked. You probably imagine why he talks so much smack. What else can he do besides talk, talk, talk? Who is this man I'm talking about of uh, so many words and yet they are disorganized? Uh, somebody besides him. Thursides, yeah, I reckon. Look into these things when I'm up. In any case, how does Odysseus deal? With this Thersites, what threat does he make to him, first and foremost? Yes? He says that he's going to chase them back to the ships naked. Yes, that's precisely what he says. He says, if I ever see you again, let no man call me father of Telemachus. If I do not strip you down naked and whip you all the way back to your ships. That's like the most humiliating thing I can possibly imagine to say to somebody uh, off the spot. Uh, maybe if I gave it some thought, I could think of something more humiliating. It was very humiliating. And then he really puts the dot on the point by then striking Thersites on his humped back and making one round tear come down his eye. And yes, you may be wondering, you're like, Mr. Schmidt, is that the first time in all of Western literature that somebody sheds a single tear? And I'd say, absolutely. Yes, the Iliad is a time of many firsts. You also see the first ever androids or robots in the Iliad. Robot comes from, I believe, a Yiddish word for slave. Too, by the way. So it gives you some ideas about how we intend to use these robots or androids when we produce them like a pestis. In any case, in any case, good. Okay, then we heard like a weird prophecy. Odysseus decides to speak. And when Odysseus speaks, people listen. In fact, you will hear today his words described as so beautiful as falling snow without wind. Imagine a snow globe. Ooh, pretty. Do people buy snow globes and stare at them because they're pretty? Well, that's how beautiful Odysseus' speech is. He gives a speech. He says, listen, guys, why are you running away? We once saw this snake, red, creepy looking, slither up a tree, eat eight sparrows. I think I said nine yesterday. It was eight children's sparrows, one mom sparrow. Calchas, the prophet, then shows up and says, oh, that means that we will consume nine years at Troy, and then in the tenth year we'll win. And so everybody's like, oh, yeah, we're pretty close to the end. We'll keep fighting. Good speech by Odysseus. Then we got to book three. We met this guy. Looks like a pretty boy. One thing we know about Paris that lets us know immediately that he cares more about his looks than it actually being effective in action is that what is he not wearing that every single other Trojan and Achaean is wearing, as you expect all people to wear, uh, before a battle where you can die? Yes. Armor! He doesn't have on armor! He has on leopard! Uh, leopard skin. It's like a leopard print, essentially. Like, he's looking fabulous. Like, my goodness. In any case, uh, something that may infuriate you later is that in book six, he will be shining his armor back in Troy that he has not used. 
while people are fighting in the battle that he caused by stealing Helen. Are you starting to see how you should be judging or evaluating the character of Paris of Troy, also called Alexandros, whose name I share? We all have work to do in this world, in any case. He jumps out in front of the Trojans, and everybody's like, whoa, look at that stud. Amazing. He looks so handsome. He must be incredible. And then he sees Menelaus. Menelaus is like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you, son. And then Paris goes, freaks out, sees him. Goes green with fear. Not even just pale, green with fear. Like he almost stepped on a snake. <coughs> and then he retreats back. And then I need you to open the book one or page 118 because I want you to see what his brother has to say to him. So his elder brother, Hector, who is the champion of Troy, the greatest warrior of Troy, is the heir to the throne, has a wife, has a son named Astyanax. His wife's name is Andromache. Well, Hector is everything that Paris is not. And, well, I just want you to see that he has quite a bit to say to his brother. Any of you have a, an older brother? Are any of you an older brother yourself? Do any of you just have a sibling? Okay, I want you to see if you recognize some of these words that people use here. This is line 38. But Hector saw him, and in words of shame, rebuked him, evil Paris, beautiful woman-crazing, cajoling, Better had you never been born. My goodness, it sounds like a sibling, doesn't it? Or killed unwedded, because at least then there wouldn't be war at Troy. My goodness. Truly I could have wished it so. It would be far better than to have you with us to our shame for others to sneer at. Surely now the flowing Herodicians laugh at us, thinking you are our bravest champion, only because your looks are handsome. There is no strength in your heart. No courage. Were you like this? Ooh, this is really important. Were you like this in that time when in sea-wandering vessels, assembling oarsmen to help you, you sailed over the water and mixed with the outlanders? He's going to describe when he took Helen. He carried away a fair woman from a remote land whose lord's kin were spearmen and fighters to your father a big sorrow and your city, and all your people, to yourself a thing shameful, but bringing joy to the enemy. And now, you would not stand up against warlike Menelaus. Thus you would learn of the man whose blossoming wife you have taken. The lyre, that's a harp that he plays, would not help you then, nor the favors of the Aphrodite, that's his looks, nor your locks, that's his hair, when you rolled in the dust, nor all your beauty. No, but the Trojans are cowards in truth. Else long before this, you had worn a mantle of flying stones for the wrong you did us. Ooh! Oh, man, Hector really doesn't spare many uh, punches or stabs or throws in that case. He says you're evil, you're cajoling, all you do is look good, but you don't fight well. Uh, were you such a coward when you went and stole a man's wife who you won't even stand up against and fight now for all your smack talk? Better, you are ashamed to your father? to your people, and to your place of birth. It's about the biggest rebuke you can possibly imagine getting from another human. Well, he basically says, you're worthless. And he's basically right. That said, that said, and uh, write that pretty quickly, if you can. Paris has quite the response 
for Hector. I'll, I'll read you that response as you write what you need to write here. He, he basically says, I'll just summarize it before I say it, uh, don't hate me because I'm beautiful, bro. But I just don't know how much that's actually supposed to help him in a battle where you wear helmets and throw spears at people, even though he doesn't have a helmet on. Then in answer, Alexandros, the godlike, spoke to him. Hector, seeing you have scolded me rightly, not beyond measure, still your heart forever is wearless, like an axe blade driven by a man's strength through the timber, one who well-skilled hews a piece for a ship driven on by the force of a man's strength. Such is the heart within your breast, unshakable. That is another example of a Homeric simile. Notice that, like an axe blade. He is comparing Hector to an axe blade, something sharp and uh, persistent. So apparently he's not sharp nor persistent. <laughs> Yet do not bring up against me the sweet favors of golden Aphrodite, never to be cast away are the gifts of the gods, magnificent, which they give of their own will. No man could have them for wanting them. Now, though, ah, interesting. If you wish me to fight it out and do battle, make the rest of the Trojans sit down and all the Achaeans, and set me in the middle with Menelaus the warlike to fight together for the sake of Helen and all her processions. Paris makes a suggestion to fight Menelaus one-on-one, -on -one, the same person who he just recoiled from in fear as if he were a poisonous snake that he almost stepped on on a mountain trail. Something to mention here. Several events here replay the first events of the Trojan War. The reason why is to remind us of what happened at the beginning of the Trojan War. So even though this is the beginning of the story we're reading, it is replaying the beginning of the Trojan War. And so we see uh, an army for battle, like the first battle. We see, for the first time, a one-on-one -on -one combat. Why would it happen in the tenth year? We would expect it to happen in the which year? The first year, immediately, upon these people coming to Troy, one-on-one -on -one battle, save a lot of lives. Rather than, there are something like 50,000 Greeks there, and something like 5,000 Trojans. You'll soon hear that there are ten times more Greeks than there are Trojans. Uh, the reason why the Achaeans, Greeks, have not defeated the Trojans is because, A, they need supplies, so they constantly have to send out their people to raid neighboring villages. That's why Achilles has destroyed 23 cities, to get supplies from them. They can't farm. It's not their land. Um, and they didn't bring farming equipment. Um, and uh, what's the next? Ah, and the other reason is that Troy is surrounded by a giant wall built by the gods, and they don't have siege engines. So if you're inside of a city with walls, it is much easier for you to stay in there and protect your home than it is for people to get in there and destroy your home. Something funny to mention to you that I might put as a bonus question is actually one of the ways Genghis Khan supposedly got into cities is A, he would conquer all the neighboring villages and send all the scared villagers into the city to spread fear. And then once he supposedly lit chickens on fire and shot them over the walls of a city in order to smoke them out. That's a real story, by the way. That's a real story. Because the idea is that while they're on fire, they're going to like go crazy and run around and uh, burn the thatch hut and things like that. I don't know. Funny. In any case, Paris says, let's do one-on-one -on -one combat. Which seems like a great idea for Paris, given the fact that he's so terrified of Menelaus. I wonder how well he's going to do. And so, what is at stake? If Paris wins, Achaeans have to leave. He gets to keep Helen. And he gets to keep the possessions he stole with him. Apparently, he didn't just take Helen. 
He also stole some things from Menelaus, some treasures as well. She, uh, Helen, took some treasures with her uh, uh, along to Troy as well. So there was some thievery beyond just Helen. Um, if Menelaus wins, the Achaeans will receive Helen, Menelaus in particular. They will get Helen's possessions back, and there will be some degree of restitution given to the Achaeans for their time and energies, though obviously the lives of their friends cannot be given back, nor, nor can their time be given back, which is really the most important uh, thing. Hector then goes out in the middle of the battle, which takes some bravery, because Achaeans are throwing spears at him, and he calls a stop to the Trojan action. Agamemnon then does the same for the Achaeans. They stop everything. What is this Hector doing? Why is he stopping the Trojans? Hector issues the challenge. Paris of Troy! Hereby challenges Menelaus to single combat. Paris of Troy, or excuse me, Menelaus then immediately says, I accept! Which, well, you know, why wouldn't he? He's far stronger than Paris. He hates Paris. He wants to take back what's his from Paris. This is a great opportunity for him to get revenge. If Menelaus wins, the war ends. If Paris wins, the war ends. You say, Mr. Schmidt, what's the rest of this book supposed to be about? The war ends. Well, apparently something happens. Something keeps us from this wonderful conclusion. Something suggested by this black and white picture on the screen. And so then we get a little break. It's sort of like Game of Thrones or, or, or any sort of movie or book that shifts from one scene to a scene that is not related to it. Then we go into Troy. This is our first time in the Trojan Citadel. Just to give you some idea of the scope of Troy. The palace at the middle of it, called uh, the Sacred Citadel of Ilion, Priam's palace, has 50 bedchambers for his sons, 100 bedchambers for his daughters and their husbands, 150 rooms. It is supposed to be gigantic and enormous beyond the scope of imagination. In fact, even if you listen to a Lil Wayne song right now, he'll talk about having something like 12 uh, bedrooms. Nowhere close to 150 bedrooms. In any case, Troy is opulent, rich, full of luxury. Very much uh, Asiatic in its ways, as opposed to uh, Western or Greek. At least so Homer represents it. And so there in Troy, we find the shimmering jewel that we've been waiting for the whole time. We meet Helen. And we get very little physical description of her. Is she a blonde? Is she a brunette? We don't know. She seems to be fair-skinned. That is a standard for beauty in the Greek time because it means that you don't have a tan because you don't work outside and you can afford to just uh, not be lazy so much as do indoor work. Usually uh, what the high-born ladies of that time would do is they would weave and talk to each other. And so they might weave plots at the same time that they weave garments for people to wear. And you say, why do they weave garments? And I say, because they didn't have factories uh, where they outsourced the labor of their shirts to other people. You had to make your own clothing at this time. And you had to hope that there was some incredible armor in your family too, because a lot of people didn't know how to make that either. We'll talk about armor soon. In any case, Helen approaches the top of the wall of Troy. This is called the Tachoscopia, the view from the wall. And there on top of the wall is, make sure you're writing this and have your composition notebook open. And uh, 
I know, it's funny how things duplicate in this world. It's funny how things duplicate. In any case, in any case, Helen then meets the king of Troy, Priam, next to his advisor, Antinor. We'll see Antinor again in the deepest circle of the Inferno next year. He actually has a region in the deepest circle named for him called Antinor. And Priam and Antinor actually make kind of a dirty old man joke to each other. As Helen approaches them, they say, I don't blame any man that's willing to fight ten years for the sake of sweet Helen. They say, hey, 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 you get it, don't you? You get it. And basically they, they laugh to each other and they're like, we do get it. Helen then approaches slightly bashfully to Priam. And you say, why? She's so beautiful. What does she have to be ashamed of? It's like, well, think about it. What does she have to be ashamed of while she walks through Troy? Well, all the women that are around, many of, or excuse me, many of the women around her, have husbands. What are those husbands doing at this very moment? They are fighting in battle. They are fighting in battle and dying. Every woman that Helen sees can potentially blame Helen for the death or the potential death of her husband, of her father, of her brothers, of her son. Do people hate Helen in Troy? Absolutely. She's the cause of all of their suffering. And so, does she live a blessed life in Troy? She was a cursed life. And so she acts like someone who's cursed, even though she's so beautiful. And so, Priam actually addresses her with gentle words, which is very kind, because he obviously knows that she is the cause of all of his suffering as well, and he has lost many sons. And Alexandros Paris is not his favorite son, and perhaps will cause him his favorite son. Hector of Troy. Hmm. Hmm. And so he says, Helen, come to me. Point out the remarkable Achaeans to me. And so this is a moment where we get to learn who the remarkable Achaeans are, how they look, and what stands out about them. So let's take a quick look. Priam first asks about the man who you would expect him to ask about. And this is a picture of Helen. See whether you don't immediately judge her. Do you? Do you find yourself thinking, yes, that's the most beautiful woman ever to have existed, or are you like, hmm? I should show a picture of Kim Kardashian next. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is probably actually the case that uh, a, modern, a modern model or a modern supermodel is more beautiful than Helen, just because we are so much healthier, we have so much better nutrition, and we have so much better uh, fitness regimens uh, these days. So that's kind of an interesting thing, thing to think. You may be alive during uh, the existence of the most handsome human ever to have existed, as well as the most beautiful human to have ever existed, and almost certainly the strongest human ever to have existed. There's a guy named Half Thor who can deadlift over a thousand pounds. Yeah, he's more like double Thor, if you ask me. In any case, only 500 for me. In any case, Priam first asks about the person you would expect him to ask about. He says, who's that royal-looking fellow? And why does he look for royalty? Well, what is Priam? Royalty himself. And so he notices Agamemnon first. There's something that just sticks out about Agamemnon. You can even see it. Probably also it helps the fact that there are people all around Agamemnon and he has very fancy and magnificent armor. The next person he sees is Odysseus. And I love the description of Odysseus. It's like a ram amongst sheep. It's like a corralling man, like a bull, amongst a bunch of... Um, uh, uh, sows, a bunch amongst uh, sort of standing around ladies. 
He looks distinct for action. He looks ready for action. He also looks different from those around him. Like he knows what he's doing is the idea. And he certainly does, more than anybody. Antinor then describes an event that happened at the very beginning of the Trojan War. So you might have asked, Mr. Schmidt, do these Achaeans just resort to violence immediately? Didn't they try peace at all? And I would say, yes, they did. When the Achaeans first came to Troy, they sent Menelaus and Odysseus as envoys, ambassadors to Troy, to, say, to demand Helen back and say, we'll turn around if you give Helen back. We don't want everybody to die. Supposedly, Antinor actually considered killing Menelaus, thinking, since this Achaean king, this Spartan king, has come to us and just given himself to us like this, we could just take him out right now. might make things easier in the future. Would that he would have. Would that he would have. In any case, they did not do that. And as I said earlier, Antinor says, he describes Menelaus and Odysseus. He says, Menelaus is taller than Odysseus. Um, and, me and actually, when we saw Odysseus, we couldn't believe that everybody said he was smart because he looked really stupid. They, he actually says he looked like a fool because he, he stood with his staff and he stared at the ground like someone who looks confused. But really, he was probably doing what while he looked at the ground? He was thinking. And so what was he thinking of, what he was going to say? And when he spoke, he spoke like fresh snow falling from the sky. It was so beautiful. And you will get a chance to see Odysseus' speaking ability during the Odyssey. You'll see a little bit of it during the Iliad. You've gotten to see him speak already. Um, and, well, to be able to speak beautifully is one of the highest arts that we have ever known as a people. Even to this day, to be able to speak in front of people is considered one of the most difficult things to learn. One of the scariest things to have to endure. In fact, one of the dreams that people have that shows them how scared they are of things is to be uh, undressed in front of people giving a speech. Isn't that the most horrifying possible dream? Probably at school as well. In front of people you know. Interesting. Alright. In any case, Ice Grader gets described too. He is a head larger than everybody. He is Shaquille O'Neal out there. He is humongous. Uh, you might imagine that when you see him, if you were on a football field, you would scream and turn the other way, regardless of what your coach says to you. All right, here's some nice images of them. Here's a picture of Menelaus. I like that. See Paris, uh, shown without a beard to show that he's not very masculine. Uh, Diomedes, we'll talk about him in book five. Odysseus here with a funny hat. Nestor looking old with a long beard. Achilles, Achilles with a smaller beard. He's known to be very handsome. That's why he's represented in this way. He's actually the most handsome, the fastest, the strongest he can, and one of the tallest. Not quite as tall as Aias Greater, though Aias Greater is his cousin. And then you have Agamemnon here as well. I just like this, uh, this image to show you just kind of what they might look like. And you notice those curly locks. Uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean peoples were known to have uh, fairly curly hair, uh, which is very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Uh, character profile of Odysseus. I don't really need you to write this very quickly. I just need you to know he's an Achaean. Did not wish to come to Troy. Pretended insanity. Clever as Achaean. I might tell you the story about how he pretended to be insane soon. Tried to negotiate alongside Menelaus for Helen before fighting. Described him similarly as a ram amongst sheep. Do not forget about that ram amongst sheep bit. And eventually comes up with the idea for the Trojan horse. Uh, 
Just the one thing I said about him pretending to be insane is that he had heard a prophecy before the Trojan War happened that he would come back 20 years after the Trojan War with less money than how he uh, left for it. Which is a big problem because part of the reason that you go to war in the first place is to sack cities, take women, take possessions, take cattle. That's what you do. You get more stuff by taking it from other people at that time. And so, we've come a long way. And what he did is he yoked an ox and a horse together. They don't work very well together. Just think about it. And then started salting his fields, acting like a crazy person when you saw your fields, your plants die. That's what uh, the Romans actually did to Carthage, their enemy, after they destroyed them. They salted their fields so nothing would ever grow again. But then things did grow again, and a hundred years later they made a Roman colony in Carthage, which I think is an even uh, better way to destroy a people. Uh, you make something better on their land. In any case, um, those, those, those Romans, they hated the Carthaginians. We'll talk about that a lot in the Aeneid. In any case, uh, Odysseus needed to be gathered to go to Troy because of his cleverness. But he didn't want to go. And so this man, Polymides, then takes Odysseus' young baby son. When he comes as an envoy, he's like, oh, you're crazy, Odysseus. Puts his young son in front of Odysseus. See if he'll run him over. Odysseus does not run him over. Odysseus does come to Troy. You want to hear what happened to Polymides? I'll tell you tomorrow.